I got a word. Listen, I'm going to preach, and it is going to go late. It's not going to go late just because I'm trying to go late, but the clock says I got 14 minutes to preach. Now, I preach fast, but not that fast. But I do have a word for you this morning that I believe is from the Lord. It's going to challenge you and encourage you. And in doing so, it's going to refocus our attention on the brilliance and the magnificence and the beauty of a Jesus who in the fullness of time became our atoning sacrifice. And now by virtue of his torn flesh, we enter into right relationship with God, presented faultless before the throne. Charles Spurgeon was once asked what made his preaching so powerful. His response has been seared in my mind for many years. Spurgeon said, it's simple. I take my text and I make a beeline to the cross. No, not every sermon must focus on the crucifixion, but yes, every sermon must lead the listener to his atoning blood. Oh, there is a reason moralistic deism is so popular today. It presents us a Christ who is missing his cross. It presents us a gospel that is void of his power. Hear me, friend, a Christ without his cross is no Christ at all. In 1937, the great American theologian Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called The Kingdom of God in America in which he prophetically critiqued the liberal social gospel of his day. He described it like this. Its message is a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross and it has left us with a gospel without power. Without the cross, there is no Christ. Without the cross, there is no church. Without the cross, there is no hope. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Muslims say that Jesus never died. He simply ascended into heaven, but never went to the cross. Jehovah's Witnesses think the cross is pagan, and they refuse to allow their cultic churches to display them. Oh, Hindus would believe that Christ was crucified, but they deny that his death was atoning. Scientologists believe in volcanoes. Mormons believe in magic underwear. And Democrats believe in Joe Biden. But we have a king who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he has been given the highest name in all of creation that at the name of Jesus, Every knee would bow and tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God our Father. I want to walk you through the timeline of what happened on the day that Jesus went willingly to the cross. 
For even like Jesus says, no man takes my life, but I willingly lay it down. Oh, complicated and dramatic, couldn't even begin to describe the events that unfolded on that day. And Jesus is betrayed by Judas at midnight in the garden of Gethsemane. He's led away in chains to stand trial before the Sanhedrin where they accuse him of blasphemy. His closest disciple, Peter, denies him. Pontius Pilate agrees to crucify him. Jesus is now instructed to carry a 300-pound cross a mile and a half from the Praetorium through the streets of Jerusalem to Golgotha's Hill. At 9 a.m., Christ is crucified. At noon, the earth goes dark. At 3 p.m., Jesus declares, it is finished. And at those words, the curtain in the temple is torn. The earth shakes. And Matthew's gospel tells us the tombs of many saints are opened and women received back their dead. Oh, it's been quite a Friday in the bustling metropolis of first century Jerusalem. While the soldiers mocked and the Pharisees rejoiced and the devil thought he had won and the people was shook, the very son of God hung lifeless on a tree. He wasn't kind of dead. He wasn't pretending to be dead. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't unconscious. Christ had committed his spirit. He had breathed his last. And when he closed his eyes for that final time on the cross, the cancellation of our debt was made complete. Oh, Jesus didn't just pay for your debt. He canceled your debt and removed the handwriting of requirements that was against your life. And in one final covenantal moment, he forever destroyed the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and declare that there is one great high priest and mediator between God and man. And his name was Jesus. Now let me help you this morning by correcting some bad theology that I often hear as it pertains to the cross. Hear me, friend. God didn't kill Jesus. We did. Let me prove it to you. Acts 2. This man, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 3. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 4. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God has raised him from the dead. Acts 5. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. Oh, it was my sin and it was your sin that drove those nails through his bloody hands and his bloody feet. 
It was my sin and it was your sin that seated that crown of thorns in his furled brow. It was my sin and it was your sin that wounded the back of Jesus with many lashes from the cat of nine tails. God didn't kill Jesus. We did. And friend, God didn't abandon his son on the cross either. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What many don't understand is that he was quoting Psalms 22. Every Jew who would have heard Jesus say these words would have immediately recognized that he was quoting a messianic prophecy from King David. Jesus is saying in this moment, even my death is a fulfillment of what your forefathers wrote. God didn't kill Jesus. God didn't abandon Jesus. So that leaves us with this question. Then where was God in the middle of this moment? And I'm glad you asked. For Paul tells us the answer to that question in 2 Corinthians 5 and 19. That God, he was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, for he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Where was God? The same place he was always been. He was in Christ Jesus. And where is God in the middle of our dark moments? the same place he has always been. For he does not dwell in temples made with human hands, but instead takes residence by his spirit in the temple of our hearts. And now that we've got our theology of the cross settled just for a moment, I wanna draw your attention to the in-between. There is so much that we skip over not just in this narrative, but in ours as well, in the in-between moments of life. Oh, one day when your body is lowered into the earth and you breathe your last, on your tombstone you will have two dates, the date you was born and the date that you died. But what is most significant about your tombstone is the dash in between. For that speaks to the type of life that you've lived. The moment of time between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is some of the most significant moments that we will ever read about. Because in this moment, an often overlooked character makes an appearance in all four of the gospels. And I want to take the time to tell you his story today. For his name was Joseph of Arimathea. Starting in the Gospel of Luke, the Bible says this. Now there was a man named Joseph. He was a member of the Sanhedrin council. But he was a good and a righteous man. For he had not consented to their decision and action. Now he came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he himself was waiting for, 
One translation says, he himself was looking for. Another translation says, he himself was expecting the kingdom of God. So he went boldly to Pontius Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Let me stop there for a moment and just make some observations. This is now the second time a man named Joseph will play a strategic part in the story of Jesus. Now I understand that, that Joseph was a common name in the first century, but what makes these two individuals unique is their uncommon character. Let me remind you, in Matthew 1, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, but he refuses to publicly disgrace her. He won't fully understand what is happening until an angel arrives and says, do not be afraid to stay with Mary, for what she has conceived is of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says Joseph did these things. Why? Because he was a good and a righteous man. Isn't it interesting that you fast forward to Luke 23 and here we find another Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, and it is practically the same designation, the same definition, the same description. Joseph was a good and a righteous man. See, the bookends of the life of Christ is really a tale of two Josephs, one at his birth, and the other at his death. Both who are willing to transcend the cultural norms of their day to be used by God in strategic kingdom moments. And it struck me while reading this passage, part of what exists within the DNA of a good and a righteous believer is the willingness to raise what isn't yours to bury what you did not kill, to clean up messes you did not make, pay for stuff you did not break, and own stuff you did not buy. Oh friend, when you're in trouble, you need Josephs in your life. People who are willing to make your problem their problem because although you might have a problem, they don't see you as a problem. But here is the problem. Our world is filled with dads who don't wanna be dads, moms who don't wanna be moms, pastors who don't wanna be shepherds, and adults who don't want to adult. But here's the truth. The mark of maturity is not running from responsibility, it's running to it. Hear me, the spiritual climate of this region isn't our fault, but it is now our responsibility. The political climate of this region isn't our fault, but it is now our responsibility. I refuse to ignore this task, and in doing so, make it more burdensome for the generation that comes after me. Oh friend, we are not running from this great task, we are running to it. Joseph was a wealthy man, he was rich. He was a prestigious man because he belonged 
to the all-star religious country club of his day, the Sanhedrin. He was an influential man for he could get an immediate audience with Pontius Pilate. But hear me today, you can have all the money, all the fame and all the clout that the world has to offer. But until Jesus lives in your heart, you will always find yourself on the wrong side of the cross. Although Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, the same group of people who conspired to kill Christ, the scriptures say he refused to consent to that decision. He risked excommunication by even voicing his opposition. And then he boldly marches to Pilate's palace to request the body of his Lord and Savior. And what would possess a man to do this mere hours after the bloody and brutal execution of an innocent man. The Bible says Joseph lived as one who was waiting for the kingdom of God. That word wait in the Greek means this, to be ready and willing to receive all that is hoped for. To wait with an active expectation. See, I would submit to you today that when you live a life of expecting the kingdom, kingdom opportunities break out all around you. The Bible don't record a voice coming out of heaven saying, Joseph, ask for the body of Jesus and give him the tomb that you just built. No, Joseph saw an opportunity to act in accordance with his expectation and in doing so enshrined himself in the greatest story ever told. Why? Because expectant people are predisposed to take advantage of emergent opportunities. I think expectancy looks like an awareness of that which you carry. I think it's so funny, every time that you make a doctor's appointment, they make you fill out a form. Regardless of what gender you appear to be, they always ask you the question, are you pregnant or trying to get pregnant? I always used to love to mess with the doctors and I, I would fill it out like, yes, I am pregnant and I am trying to get pregnant just to see what they would say. That was always funny a few years ago and now they just look at me and say, sir, whatever life you wanna live, we just support it. They always wanna know if you are expecting. Because if you are expecting, the way in which you walk and manage your life looks different. They don't wanna do x-rays the same if you are expecting. They don't wanna prescribe the same medications if you are expecting. They don't wanna give you the same instructions if you are expecting because they know that there is value in that which you carry. I was with Pastor Bill Johnson Friday night at Northwest University and he was teaching and, and, and in the middle of his teaching, he began to talk about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River and the voice that came from heaven, this is my son in who I am well pleased. And the dove representing the Holy Spirit landing and staying on his shoulder and he asked the question, if you knew that there was a dove sitting on your shoulder, would it change the way that you walked? You know, I have a pet peeve as a pastor. 
I'm going to let you know what it is today. And if you've done this before, there's no shame or guilt. I'm not trying to make you feel bad because I know I've done it a time or two in my life as well. But oftentimes in atmospheres of faith, alter moments. People are coming forward for prayer. As I begin to work the altars, I'll lay my hand on their shoulder and I'll say, hi, I'm Russ. Remind me of what your name is. And then I'll ask them the question, what have you come forward to request prayer for? It's sometimes as a way to maybe just give me freedom or license or not wanting to be obtrusive or those types of things. They'll say this to me. They'll say, Pastor, whatever the Lord lays on your heart. Now look, here's the reality. By the time that you're halfway up to the altar, God has already spoken to me about what you need. That's called the gift of prophecy, discernment. Before you ever get up out of your seat, I can see it in the room. I can see it on people's faces. The Spirit of God begin to speak to me. That person needs a breakthrough in their marriage. That person needs a breakthrough in their business. They're carrying infirmity in their heart, unforgiveness in their life. The Lord just begin to speak to me. But I learned the art of asking the question, why have you come forward for prayer? Because the reason why I ask that is not because I don't know, and it's not because God doesn't know. It's because there is power in you verbalizing what you are expecting to receive. It's like the interaction of Jesus with the man who was born lame. And Jesus is talking with him and he says, what would you like me to do for you? An obvious, even insulting and dumb question. What do you think? Use your eyes. The reason why Jesus is asking this question is not because he doesn't know, but because there is power in what you expect. This is why Mary says to the angel, let it be done unto me according to your word. I don't know how it's going to work. I've never been with a man. How could the Christ child be living inside of my womb? It doesn't make any sense in the natural. You said it's conceived by the Holy Spirit. I don't have any other option but to trust what you've said and engineer my life around the value of expectancy. The other day I was out in the backyard and me and my nine-year-old was throwing the football back and forth and he was standing out there just looking bored to tears. And I said, listen, Matthew, if you ain't having fun, I'm not either. Let's just go back inside. He said, no, throw me the ball. I said, okay. I said, get ready. Because by the time that dad releases this, you won't have the opportunity to get ready. You've got to be ready so you can receive it. By the time that I throw this, pretty soon that ball's gonna be hitting you in the face and now I'm the bad guy. I'm telling you, you've got to be ready. Are you ready? I'm ready, but he was standing like this. I said, man, you don't look, I'm ready, just throw it. Expectancy doesn't just sound like something, it looks like something. You know why I worship the way that I do, hands raised to heaven? because I'm expecting breakthrough in my life. I'm reaching to heaven. 
I'm pulling on what is available for my life. I'm saying, God, do it for me. God, do it for my family. God, do it for my friends, my coworkers, our volunteers. God, do it for this church. God, do it for this region. And I find myself going back to him time and time again, praying some of the same prayers and I always hear his voice. Russell, tell me what you want. God, you know what I want. True, but I want you to say it. Because when those words leave your mouth, and your ears begin to hear them. It creates expectancy in your life. And I am just struck by Joseph of Arimathea. He don't need Jesus, he got to Sanhedrin. He don't need discipleship, he got money. He don't need accolades, he got influence. He don't need open doors, he can be in Pilate's court anytime that he wants. But he makes the decision to live the type of life that expects the kingdom to break out in and all around him. And what would it look like if a group of 3,000 believers from a church called Pursuit begin to walk these city streets expecting the kingdom to break out? What would it look like for you to go into your workplace expecting the kingdom to break out? What would it look like for your day-to-day interactions if you simply operated in an attitude of awareness? I got a dove on my shoulder and I'm expecting a miracle from the one that I serve. Now watch how the story continues, I'm almost done. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him, is it true? Is it true that Jesus is already dead? When he learned from the soldier that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Now Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. One in which no man had ever laid. The scriptures record that Nicodemus had all of one interaction with Christ in John 3, where he asks about what it means to be born again. And the answer that Jesus gives him, Nicodemus doesn't even understand. He says, you must be born again. He said, how can a man of old age go back into his mother's womb? Jesus said, you missed the point. It's not born of the flesh, it's born of the spirit. And then it's over. The disciples who walked with him for three and a half years and saw the miracles vanished. Peter, the one who swore he would never betray Christ, vanished. The crowds who ate the bread he multiplied and the fish he provided vanished. The people who were touched, healed, and set free, the crowds who exalted him as long as he satiated their need for more, vanished. And yet who is it? who comes for the body of Christ. Nicodemus, the nighttime Pharisee, and his good old buddy, Joe. They're rich, and they are religious. Oh, surely they could have hired the interns for the filthy task of transporting this body to a tomb. But not on this day. This day was different. 
On this day, the one that they called Jesus, King of the Jews, was slain for all to see. And on this day, Nicodemus the Pharisee and Joseph of Arimathea would personally see to it that the customary practices were followed to a T. On this day, the bride and morning star became the pure and the spotless lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world. The burial fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's grave. The burial fulfilled the prophecy of Christ that like Jonah, he would be hidden in the earth for three days. The burial fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 16 that his body would not see decay. The burial would forever destroy the Gnostic lie that Jesus did not truly die. And why, why, why? Why do the biblical authors have to give details that almost seem ancillary to the greater narrative? Why do they have to tell us it's a new tomb? Because if the tomb was used, the Jews would have said, oh, this is just like the soldier who fell on the bones of Elijah and came back to life. We've seen this before. Nothing special, move along. God said, no. Not this time. This miracle, you won't ever be able to explain away. You know, I'm not sure if this is what Joseph of Arimathea ever thought he would be known for. I doubt he had any idea the significance of the body that one day would lay in the tomb that he had cut out of the rock. But I guess my question for you today is this. Like that man, Joseph, from the four gospels that record the burial of Christ, can this Jesus borrow your tomb? Can this Jesus borrow that place of injury or abuse? Can this Jesus borrow the cavern of your pain and your loneliness? Can this Jesus borrow the box of your fears and dreams, desires and worries and anxious thoughts that keep you up at night because anything that he borrows never gets returned in the same condition? When Thomas let Jesus borrow his doubt, he received a faith that was unshakable. When Peter let Jesus borrow his shame, he received a grace that was unchangeable. When Zacchaeus let Jesus borrow his lack, he received a blessing that was abundant. When the little boy let Jesus borrow his lunch, he received a meal that was extravagant. Anything that you let him borrow, is transformed into something holy by the time it returns. You know what's interesting? Church history records that the borrowed tomb from Joseph of Arimathea was never used as a tomb again after the relatively short stay of Jesus. For in the 300s, an emperor named Constantine 
built a place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre right around that very empty tomb to make it a memorial for all generations that pilgrims from around the world could line up and gaze on what isn't there and be absolutely convinced of this reality that the same God who was with Christ on the cross, the same God who was with Christ in the tomb, the same God who by his spirit raised Jesus from the grave is the same God that Christ now sits at the right hand of and it's the same God who knows the day and the hour in which he will return. And when you let Christ borrow your tomb, the primary thing it becomes is a testimony for people who can't understand how you made it out. That tomb of childhood abuse, it's now a testimony because God borrowed what the enemy meant for evil and he has used it for good. The tomb of your divorce, the tomb of your failure, the tomb of your bankruptcy, the tomb of your criminal record, the tomb of your clinical depression, the tomb of your suicidal thought, the tomb of your rejection, the tomb of your abandonment, the tomb of your disgrace, the tomb of your shame and condemnation. Would you let this Jesus, borrow your tomb, because I can promise you in due time, a testimony is coming. This is the God that we serve. The one who borrows our tombs and turns them in to a memorial for all generations. Come on, would you stand as we close?